0: thanks for being with us. As much as we all hope, pray, and wish that COVID is going away, it's not going away anytime in the foreseeable future. But as the number of cases decline, two Northeast Ohio doctors have said we have reached a turning point in our COVID response. They shared that last week in a personal view column on Crane's Cleveland. Dr. Aparna is an associate professor of pediatrics at Case Western Reserve University. And Dr. David Margolius is an associate professor of medicine at both Case and Metro Health. And they join us today to talk about the column. Thanks for being with us, doctors. Glad we can have you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Dr. Ball, let's go back to early 2020. I'll share the case of what happened in my family. My wife, this is like February, gets a cough. She can't breathe. Um, she has a terrible fever. She loses her taste, sense of taste and smell. She goes to the doctor, but COVID is starting to be talked about. But they were really sure what she had. What? How are you seeing things during that early part of 2020? When would you think, I'm not really sure what's going on here?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think we all were in that boat at that time, sort of watching the news come in, having some personal experiences like the one you described, not knowing much about... What to expect what the outcomes would be how was this virus really spread um what kind of effect would it have on our population so I, ju- I just think a lot of unknowns and so the way that we all kind of reacted at that point I, you know for for me it was kind of march of 2020 uh was in an environment of not knowing much and thinking you know we need to do everything we can to sort of pause and collect some more information because we're not sure how this is going to play out
0: dr Morgolius. When you this started to happen, and did you think to yourself, at what point did you say to yourself, "Oh boy, this is going to be a lot worse than we maybe perhaps first thought"?
2: Oh well, so I I think I remember the the first week in March, we had a a big retreat planned for for one of our new clinics that we're we're opening up at Metro Health, our Ohio City clinic, and it was scheduled for March 11th. So the, the the week prior. Kind of said, okay, you know, I think we ought to cancel this in-person retreat. I don't know what's going on. And then it was March 9th, The first three cases were diagnosed in in Cleveland. March eleventh, uh, I got the charge here at Metro Health to to start the twenty-four-seven physician-staffed COVID hotline, and and that started that launched uh, at noon on March thirteenth, Friday, March thirteenth, and so for the next. Kind of three weeks until we were fully staffed. Uh, you know, I barely slept, and we were in in, in total panic mode. Um, you know, really just on the phone with folks, um, reassuring as much as we could, and and sending folks to the emergency room who who needed higher level of care.
0: Doctor Broll hindsight is always twenty twenty. But what could we have done back March, April, May of of that time, twenty twenty, that made might have made this. Uh, less severe uh, disease that spread so quickly? You
1: know, I think that's a tough question, right? Because we were operating in a really uncertain environment, you know, and I think that a lot of what we did made sense, actually, you know, we... We didn't know much. We were seeing this uptick in severe illness. There was a lot of fear. So, um, kind of that throw the kitchen sink at the problem. That's kind of where we were. We didn't have a lot of tools at our disposal. We didn't know what was going to be effective therapeutically. We didn't have vaccines, you know. So this idea of like lock it down for a while. Let's figure out what's going on. Shut some things down. I I, I actually think you know we we did the best we could in a tough period of time. I will say, looking back in hindsight, I think that there have been some opportunities, perhaps to collect some more evidence and data around um, certain interventions. For example, you know, earlier evidence about what kinds of masks, in what settings, um, how are we going to effectively accomplish outreach to our most at-risk populations? Who are those populations? What are the barriers to to reaching out to those populations? So I think sort of that evidence gathering, um, both, both here but also globally, kind of sharing best practices around what we were learning around the world setting up that infrastructure for sharing best practices, and also collecting needed evidence around most effective interventions. I I think that there's more we could have done there.
0: Dr. Margolius, it seems that every time there's a new scientific discovery, perhaps about the effectiveness of masks or vaccines, there's always a little bit of pushback. And I realize people can have differences of opinion, but sometimes that pushback seems to come from people who aren't medically trained. How frustrating is that for you as a doctor and, and the second question is, is this, does this hurt the scientific and medical profession in terms of trust?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I, um, I honestly haven't been super frustrated with, with folks who aren't doctors expressing their opinion, because honestly, I mean, in med school, there are only certain things that we learn about. And we really focus on treating an individual with, with a disease or an exacerbation of a disease. And so I, I haven't minded folks kind of looking at the data and, and making their own impression and putting it out there. I think what's been when what's been frustrating is that when there is new evidence, we know now that you know washing our hands and cleaning surfaces and like this deep sanitation, sanitation theater really doesn't help prevent the the, the spread of COVID. I wish more folks would kind of join the chorus to to stop that nonsense. Essentially, um, you know, plexiglass, for example, is still everywhere. You know, it's just like no matter where you are. In uh, and thinking about masking and and other interventions um, for stopping the spread of covid we all know plexiglass is, is ridiculous and and we could stop that now
1: if if i could jump in there i just want to add you know i think one of the potential downsides of not having this clear view of prioritizing interventions that make the most sense is that it's confusing for people you know if people think that you know that some of these Non-helpful interventions are an important use of energy. You know, are we underemphasizing what we really need to be doing, like talking with folks about vaccines and for high-risk population boosters? You know, human beings don't have an infinite capacity to pay attention to everything. So I think we really need to focus on, on communicating about what is most helpful at this point in time, which is very different than in March 2020.
0: In the column you and Dr. Megroleus wrote, Dr. Bull, you said that we have reached this turning point in our in the way we respond to COVID. So why is now the turning point?
1: I think for a number of reasons. Vaccines are now available to everyone over the age of five, and we know that they provide sustained protection against severe disease. I mean that's a, a real game changer right there. And then also we have this this highly contagious Omicron variant that has really you know torn through our region and the country, um, which. Is changed things. Um, it changes sort of the transmission dynamics of the virus, but it also has left immunity in its wake, you know, sometimes very painfully for those at-risk populations that were unvaccinated and were confronted with this new variant, but it, it has left a wave of post, post-infection immunity in its wake, which, which changes the dynamics of sort of the risk of our population. So I think the new variant, the fact that vaccines are available, we have much more information now about how this virus is transmitted, and we know which populations are at high risk. Um, that's a lot more than we knew back in March of 2020. And so I think all of that taken together, we have a moment to kind of take a deep breath and take stock and really think about prioritizing the interventions that, that work the most. And also, as we said in our piece, to really remind ourselves that there are a lot of other dimensions of health that in our you know, sometimes understandable laser focus on COVID have gotten left behind. And I think we have an opportunity to refocus on those too.
0: What are some of the things we need to do, Dr. Margolius? now that we have hit this turning point? What are some of the priorities we should make uh, most important?
2: Yeah, I I think the most effective intervention continues to be vaccines. Um, And so we still have not vaccinated everybody who's who's at highest risk amongst the elderly. Boosters have shown to be very effective in preventing severe illness in those over 65. And Ohio, I believe, remains one of the lowest states in, in uh, in boosting the elderly. Um, nursing homes are, are, are a very high risk area. You know, masking in nursing homes makes sense. You know, those are, those are the areas where we really need to focus our attention.
0: Doctor Ball, one of the things you mentioned in this personal view column is that we're prioritizing measures that are politically and practically easier to implement over those that are perhaps more impactful in, in preventing severe outcomes. How is how so? Why is this happening?
1: You know, I. I- been reflecting on this a lot. And I think there are a few explanations for that. I mean, number one, I think we as as human beings and as medical professionals, quite honestly, have this feeling that we've got to do something and we've got to show that we're doing something. And, and I, that's very understandable. I mean, this has been a really devastating pandemic. But I think sometimes we, we may reassure ourselves falsely that we're doing something because something is visible or it's relatively easier to implement like in settings like schools, you know, to make a a rule that affects all the students, something of that nature. It's relatively easier practically to, to implement. It may make us feel like we're, you know, doing something to combat this terrible problem, but you know what? Dr. Margolius was just describing, you know, outreach to higher risk populations. How do we solve these thorny problems about our elders being underboosted and undervaccinated? How do we solve these thorny problems about actually meeting people where they are, who are at higher risk, to help reach out with vaccine education and booster education? Those are those are hard um, problems to solve, but that's really going to be our our most impactful space to make a difference. Not maybe some of these interventions that are highly visible. And Practically easier to implement, um, but maybe not as effective.
0: Dr. Apparao and Dr. David Margolius join us for the Landscape of Cranesleeve and Podcast. We're talking about their personal view column, where they say we've reached a turning point in our COVID responses. Dr. Margolius, one of the things that you talk about in your piece is this notion of a false dichotomy when it comes to discussing COVID policy decisions. What's the dichotomy?
2: Well, yeah, you know, I think the the what we're seeing. It, for the, the whole country has, has opened up, as, as many folks have pointed out, you know the State of the Union uh, was earlier this week and folks weren't wearing masks. Uh, the Super Bowl was a couple weeks ago. Uh, folks were in loges not wearing masks. And, and if you look at our most kind of underrepresented folks in society, children, toddlers, uh, essential workers and restaurants, I mean those are the folks that are still masked. Those are the folks that now are, are curing the, the brunt of COVID restrictions. And it just, the dichotomy is, is really upsetting and it doesn't lead to a reduction in morbidity and mortality from, from this pandemic.
1: If I could just add, I think another dimension of that, of the dichotomy that we were kind of referring to is, you know, this idea that there's no gray area between taking COVID seriously and not taking COVID seriously. So that if we want to have these difficult conversations in the gray area about, okay, let's really like get serious about which interventions are making the biggest difference, ease up on the ones that don't, focus on the ones that do, that by no means means that we don't take COVID seriously, right? But I think sometimes that debate has gotten so polarized that the minute we start to ask those tough questions, it can immediately be cast into you you are, aren't taking COVID seriously enough or something of that nature. And it, it tends to shut down those productive conversations. And that's what we're really hoping is going to change at this turning point.
2: Folks will say, you know, say to us when we're talking about masking, you know, not not masking children with cloth masks or you know, letting folks do speech therapy without masks, so that we are comfortable with a thousand people dying a day from COVID. And it's just, it's its hurtful, it's not productive, and it, and it doesn't make scientific sense.
0: I read an interesting op-ed piece that sort of deals with this issue of, of that we sometimes try to shame people in, into participating in, in COVID uh, response and, and mitigation processes. And the, the author said to the effect, you know, we became angry when when people were blamed for their personal behaviors when it comes to drugs or poverty. You know, people say, "Well, they made a bad choice," and we say, "Well, that's not that's not fair." But when people make a choice for COVID, and we say, "Well, they made a bad choice," it it seems to be a different thing that we're trying to sort of shaming people in, into participating. Is this a problem?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely a problem, and we both have observed this. So I'd love to hear what you have to say to um, Dave. But you know, I think that that shame and fear are not effective motivators around, um, people making individual choices. It can further marginalize people, make people less likely to be able to listen openly, um, to those, uh, those conversations about medical decision-making. We see this all the time in our practice, right? When we have patients who are grappling with medical decisions, for us, it's about providing information and supporting patients through their decision. There's no shame or fear or guilt or blame involved. Um, And so unfortunately, I think those kinds of tactics of trying to shame people, you know, that... Tying wearing a mask to being a good person or tying a choice about a vaccine to being a caring or kind person and you're irresponsible or bad somehow if you make the wrong choice. I mean, certainly that's not an effective mode of communication and the individuals we need to reach the most are likely to be actually, I think, Kind of driven further away from the conversation, um, and I think that's just another example too of how sometimes you know engaging in in focusing on the things that are highly visible it, it masks are a great example as sort of like a symbol of of your um, goodness as a responder to COVID guidelines is just really counterproductive. So so I don't know, Dave, if you have anything to add to that.
2: Yeah, no, I think yeah, I think you nailed it. Uh, I it's just the you'd asked earlier on if I get upset with people kind of spreading information and and. Honestly, the, the only folks I'm, I'm getting upset with, and and I think Aparna agrees, is some of our um, professional colleagues who are uh, using their pulpit to make people feel bad. And, and it's just not productive. It's not helpful. It's not going to help us build trust. It's not going to help us build a better world.
0: But can you understand the sense of frustration that people in your profession have and in other professions where they say, you know, we're telling you to, to do these things but you're not doing them and now you're taking up hospital beds that for other people and you know the anger that I can certainly sense that
1: i mean i absolutely understand the exhaustion and frustration and i've been refl- reflecting about this too you know we often learn when we are taught about communicating with patients um, we're often taught that sometimes that moment when you're exhausted as a clinician you're so tired maybe you're post call somebody yells at you or maybe they're making a choice that is so frustrating that's the moment where you're your impulse might be to take an adversarial position, right? And that's the very moment where we as health professionals have to understand that we have to take a step back. Okay, I'm depleted, I'm exhausted, I'm frustrated. I'm super frustrated about this situation or the choice this individual is making and the effect maybe it's having on my practice. But still, that's the very moment where we need to kind of like manage those emotions and remember what we're really trying to accomplish, which is to build relationship with people who deserve our care.
0: Dr. Margolius, what restrictions should we start to lift, do you think? Well, you know, for certainly um, the, the
2: children in schools do not need to wear cloth masks. It just it, it no longer makes sense. I think we need to go through every industry and find all the plexiglass and, and throw it uh, in, in the dump. And, you know, at this point, I, I think we need to take a hard look at, at vaccine mandates as well, um, which is a little bit trickier and, and, you know, less of a, I think, an urgent issue for us. But I think right from the beginning, just
0: masking children as a mandate needs to go away. Dr. Bull, you're a pediatrician. What have your interactions with kids been? How, how have they been? What have they said about COVID? How frightened are they of it? or And, you know, the, the whole thing that comes with it.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been a real challenge, and I think for those of us in primary care, we've been able to see this full spectrum of effects of COVID, where certainly I've cared for children who've had family members uh, affected by COVID, who've gotten sick from COVID, who've experienced loss of loved ones from COVID, but also have really, you know, seen kids who have struggled with educational loss, kids who didn't have a safe place to go for virtual school, maybe no reliable way to get connected to virtual school, children who rely on therapies in schools, the children with... Uh, uh, special educational needs or developmental needs who are either not getting those or, you know, this sort of absurd situation of a four-year-old trying to do virtual occupational therapy. You know, it doesn't work. Um, you know, so so some of that. And also just the sense of instability, like not having a, a, a safe and, and regular place to go during the day it can be devastating for children. Children in Cleveland experienced closed playgrounds for a very long time, outdoor playgrounds. Um, I've taken care of children who are experiencing homelessness who did not have a place to play outside. I mean, so... Just and and rising rates of obesity, mental health, anxiety. I also worry. You know, I, I've experienced. I've seen children who have experienced this sense of like outsized responsibility that it's their job to control the spread of the pandemic, because sometimes these masking and distancing requirements in schools are very punitively enforced. And it's kind of the message they're getting is, like, if you're not careful about your mask, you're going to hurt your grandma or something like that, you know, or you're going to hurt a classmate. I mean, that's a big burden for a young child um, to carry. And I think it does result in quite a bit of anxiety. And so, you know, what I would say is I think children have experienced really an outsized burden when it comes to both um, COVID. And, and its restrictions. And so I, I couldn't agree more that restrictions that have, um, if anything, marginal or no benefit that are disproportionately placed on children really need to be lifted. And I'd love to see children begin to return to unrestricted educational, re- recreational, social interactions where they can have those moments of circle time in their classroom when they get a story read to them. They can play at recess. They can go back to sports. Um, so th- that's sort of how I'm, I'm seeing this moment in time for our kids.
0: Dr. Morgolius, you mentioned there still are a lot of high-risk populations, nursing homes among them. Who are some of the other ones, and what are the best ways to treat them? Is it still vaccinations?
2: Yeah, vaccines are the answer. I mean, we never, I I should say, I never imagined that an effective vaccine would would roll out and be safe this quickly, Um, and it really has been, and it's been incredible. Um, but the folks who are, are less likely to be vaccine, uh, vaccinated are, are folks who have been historically oppressed by racism, are folks who are uh, limited English proficiency in our community. W- you know, we really have an opportunity to, to close that gap
0: and focus on the things that, that matter most. Dr. Bold, do you think we're always going to have a percentage of the population that's going to want to wear masks?
1: That may, may very well be, and I think we need to, to you know, be very supportive of people's personal choices at this moment in time. I also think we've all experienced the trauma and fear and anxiety of these couple years in different ways, and so, you know, I hope that folks feel they have someone they can trust, a primary care provider, to really talk about their own risks and their family members' risks and calibrate their choices based on those medical risks. But some of it's going to be about how we feel, and that's totally fine. And so I think there are going to maybe be some people who continue to make that choice.
0: Dr. Margolius, finally, when it comes to messaging for COVID, what do we need to do moving forward?
2: I, I think we need to reassure people. I think we need to remind folks how much we've uh, been through in terms of success. I think we need to remind folks that the vaccine, I mean, it really was, uh, it feels like a miracle how effective it is and, and how soon that, that rolled out. I think we need to celebrate the times when, when our COVID cases are at a nadir in our community. I mean, things are great right now in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County, where our numbers are as low as they were uh, in July. And so I think we need to
0: take those moments to celebrate. Great. Dr. Aparnavold, Dr. David Margolius. thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your personal view column in Cranes. I think a lot of people have enjoyed reading it and hopefully more will take a look at it. Thanks again for being with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: And thank you for joining us for The Landscape, of Cranes Cleveland podcast. I'm Dan Paletta. We're always glad when you can be with us and we'll talk again soon.